Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, we hear from one of the women who helped provide abortions in Chicago before it was legal. I'm hoping that if people get any inspiration from it, it's not because we were so strong and heroic, but because we were so ordinary. There's a new documentary about her on HBO. It's called The Janes. Plus, a roundup of other movies coming out this summer. It's hard to sort of imagine bigger movie stars than Chris Evans and Ryan Gosling punching each other. So it'll be an interesting experiment. But first, a chance to sit back, relax, and unwind from the week that was with an excellent human. With us this week, we have Gabby Dunn. They've written several best-selling books and host the podcasts Bad With Money and Just Between Us. Their newest ebook and audiobook, Stimulus Wreck, is now available on Scribd. Gabby, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm delighted. Okay, so let's start with this conversation that's been happening on Twitter this week about the movie Fire Island. This is the Joel Kim Booster and Bowen Yang movie on Hulu. This week is sacred. We're going to Fire Island. It's like gay Disney World. Fun for the whole family. Fire Island came out over the weekend, and then this week, journalist Hannah Rosen tweeted about how miserably the movie fails the Bechdel test. Mm -hmm. Now, the Bechdel test, of course, being the idea that a story needs to have at least two female characters, and they have to talk about something other than a dude. Hannah received a lot of criticism for this. She has since apologized. But I don't know, it kind of got us thinking, like, you know, for a long time, the Bechdel test has kind of been like a fun, easy metric for like how dude-heavy is this movie? But, Mm -hmm. you know, like, do you think it's time to to update this situation? Uh, I think it's complicated. But one, I hate when people take things in bad faith on Twitter. That's why I'm not on Twitter. And Mm, two, I hate when people think that because Twitter exists, they have to have an opinion about something. Like, oftentimes I'll go, I really want to talk about this thing that's not part of my, like, community. And then I'll sit on it for 24 hours and go, I didn't need to say anything. So I have not seen it. I am not sure what happens in Fire Island, but I do know that not everything is for every type of person. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I do think it's slightly out of date. We've gotten a more complicated view of gender. Mm-hmm. Um, this is me speaking as like a non-binary person. Um, we've gotten, you know, that's pretty tangled now in a really great way. Well, let alone race and class and, you know, like fill in the blank of, you know. And I think that we've come up with other tests for um, checking for the treatment of marginalized communities in films. But I also know that now we're getting a lot more films that are from specific communities and they can't please everyone. I think it's hard because especially with things that are made for and by uh, queer people, trans people, um, we are more likely to come after our own with complaints or with um, high hopes that it will be perfect in every aspect. And we don't use that same energy for films that we know won't pass. 
or films that we feel are like, well, that's a lost cause anyway. And what ends up happening is this infighting within the community, which I've been guilty of. I'm quite guilty of that. Um, within the community that doesn't extend to places where we don't feel we can make an impact. And that sucks because it gets it gives these films a lot more criticism. And I think it will make studios more reticent to make them because there is more likely to be backlash or criticism of them within their own communities. Which is so frustrating also because it's such a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because the reason why there are so few of these films in the first place is because there aren't that many stories about people with marginalized identities. And so that puts so much pressure on these, you know, one or two that we get because everyone wants to be able to see themselves in it, even if that, you know, isn't the story that's trying to be told, you know? Right. Let us let us screw up or uh, focus on certain things the way that other films have been allowed to do in the mainstream Mm. uh, eye for, you know, decades. (laughs) I think there is something to be said about misogyny in the cis gay male community um, that doesn't, it's not Fire Island's job to deal with. But I do, you know, I do think that there is misogyny. I do think that there's lesbophobia. I do think that there's a lot of um, biphobia. But I don't think that it's the job of a a rom-com to handle that. I don't know. I know that in Hannah's crit- critical tweet, it was something about lesbian joke stereotypes, which fine. I can see that how that would be shitty in like a gay movie to see mm-hmm. your own community being made fun of. But I don't know. I got to think that some sometimes not everyone in a movie has to be perfect. And I also think that it's Possibly something where, you know, a lot of queer white people were like, I'm going to stay out of the conversation about Moonlight. And I think I'm I'm white. I'm assuming you're white. And perhaps we need to stay out of the conversation about Fire Island. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a lot of it. And like, what a bummer with the Bechdel test, especially that like, I think it can be seen as like a pretty great excuse for white women to continue to center themselves in narratives where we should just like step back and say, you know what, this is obviously not a film that is made specifically for me, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy it. So I'm just along for this ride and I'm going to, you know, it's free to keep my mouth shut. (laughs) And there's other, there's other tests, right? And, you know, I think as a, as someone who came out as transmasculine non-binary about a year ago, um, I'm still figuring out my place in situations like the Bechdel test. You know, Mm. if people want to put my show on a playlist of like best podcasts by women, you know, obviously that's a, that's a playlist that's needed, but I, I don't need to be there. So it is this weird thing where gender has sort of become part of the conversation. Class has become part of the conversation. Race has become part of the conversation. Um, And so, you know, there's all these sorts of tests and no movie is going to pass all of them unless right. there is a movie that passes all of them please let me know that would be fun i would love that yeah let's start that twitter thread. well we'll keep we'll email you about it gabby thank you so much <laughs> i will say what's fun is that allison bechdel ended up chiming in about this on twitter oh and God. said and said i just added a corollary to the bechdel test two men talking to each other about the female protagonist of an alice monroe story in a screenplay structured on a jane austen novel is a pass that's very funny. God, it's perfect, right? <laughs> I do think sometimes if you and I've learned this the hard way, just don't. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just let things be. I just worry about us coming for each other, and I think mm. 
Yeah. There are other stories that need to be told. There are other, like that movie's focus clearly isn't women. So yeah. And that's, that's okay. Great. Yeah, totally. It's, it's AAPI men. Good. Great. And yeah. gay men. Good. Yeah. With a little Jane Austen. What's not to love? <laughs> okay, so next I want to talk about the latest trend piece from the New York Times style section because, like, I don't even know. So this is about the idea of a caviar bump, which I guess involves putting a spoonful of caviar, like, on your fist, like where you would put salt after a tequila shot, and then slurping it up. Is this something you would ever do, Gabby? No, but I... <laughs> when you When I saw caviar bump, I was like... Oh Are God! People snorting this caviar, ca- cocaine, right? <laughs> yeah. But I think a lot of my um, my answers to your questions, Greta, will just end up being don't. How about don't? <laughs> and in this case, like covering covering this, you could say, how about don't? Yeah. Um, yeah. Also doing at, it, maybe it feels super out of touch. I don't know. I I don't really caviar's. I think a bit overrated. I yeah. mean, I. This is coming from I do love escargot, which I think sometimes falls into sure. that same category. Yeah. No, I think let's uh, the caviar bump itself, whatever. But like the covering of it, the giving space to it. Mm-hmm. And you know what? If that's if that reporter, if that's the big, if that's like a story that got them in the style section and they they got their first byline, good for you. You know what I mean? You hustled. Sure. You saw three things yeah. happen. You said it was a trend. You convinced an editor. Ult- ultimately, you're a scammer, and I love that for you. I mean, yeah, love a good scam, right? Like, we'll I guess we'll just call that a win. <laughs> it's a scam all around. Uh, and I and you know what? Kudos if you got paid for this story. Kudos to you. You've done it. What about the rest of us spending time reading it, though? Is there a little bit of a let's find something else to do on that end of things, too? <laughs> well, why do you think people this is like why people make fun of The New York Times? Like, why do you think know, it, like, it's they the don't, perfect story for it? Yeah. Yeah. They like don't read it because why? <laughs> yeah. Yep. And like, I mean, I work in public radio. I'm very well aware of when a thing is a parody of itself. Correct. This definitely felt like one for sure. <laughs> But we're talking about it. Yeah, so. I mean, there you go. We're giving it time. So Free let's move on, though. Another wild story uh, is about this week's Billboard Top 10 chart here in the U.S. Um, there oh. are two Harry Styles songs. There's a Lizzo song and then a bunch of artists that I have never heard of. <laughs> and then Kate Bush's 1985 song, Running Up That Hill. It's come back into popularity because it was featured in a scene in the new season of the show Stranger Things. This is kind of epic and awesome. Are you a fan of this song? Uh, yes, this is very exciting. And I think it's one of those things that shows the power. You know, we don't have a lot because there's so many channels. We yeah. don't have a lot of ability to make something be part of the zeitgeist. Like hmm. we, you know, there's nothing really that says to me like prime time. We're all watching it. We're all right. watching Attention this live at this scattered. time. Yeah, you're right. So the idea that Stranger Things has this power still after all this time is really wild to me. And that there's something that we can all collectively see change pop culturally that like Kate Bush is back on the charts is so interesting to me in this time when attention is so split. Mm-hmm. So I good like this is cool. And I think like it's something that people doing the music for shows should really take into consideration it's really it's great to break new artists but also there's it's fun to 
to see a younger generation discover, you know, these songs and these these artists that are seen as part of like only a specific time back in the day. Yeah, it's really cool. I think it's really cool, too. I think there's totally another version where like the olds shit on these kids for like finding out about Kate Bush through Stranger Things. But like I'm like you, I'm so much more excited about like, hey, good for them for finding a thing they like that they might not have known about otherwise. Like, that's awesome. You know? Yeah. I found so many artists that I loved through weird means when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's no timeline on liking something or find you find things when you find them. Yeah. Uh, And so I think that I think it's, you know, sometimes as an old, old, uh, (laughs) I'm not old, but I'm in my mid thirties. It's hard to, you know, (laughs) sure. Yeah. Uh, someone on on TikTok called me their comfort millennial. Oh my god! Wow. You know that reminds me of when I was doing an event recently, and somebody was like, "I've been listening to you since I was in high school," and I was like, "Oh my ah. god!" <laughs> right? They're like, they're like, are they chuggy sometimes? Yes, but they're my comfort millennial, and I was yes, like, "Oh okay. my god!" Okay. <laughs> so you just have to come to terms with that. Like, there are people younger than you, and they're learning about stuff. You exactly. know, that's been happening since the dawn of time, and that's cool. So if there were like if you could pick any old school band to come back on top of the charts like this and have oh my god like a new generation of of youngs get really stoked about it what would you choose over the pandemic i got really into disco oh, um, cool really into it uh and i start i i started working on a book about it and um i like you know just really got into 70s disco um and so I, I mean, everything good was made by Nile Rodgers of Chic. I mean, pretty yeah. Much. And there are a ton of artists. I mean, I got obsessed with Tina Turner, but there are a ton of artists that I started really loving, like Thelma Houston and Evelyn Champagne King. There's all these kinds of like amazing women of color that were like holding down during disco. So I think it would be cool to see like any sort of song like that make its way to the charts and have these these women get the love that they deserve. Yeah, I love it. Well, Gabby, thank you so much for coming on. This was so much fun. Oh, thank you for having me. Great, great chat. Great topics. <laughs> There's a new documentary out on HBO. It's called The Janes, and it's about a group of young women in Chicago who helped women get abortions in the late 60s and early 70s before Roe v. Wade. Um, Women were suffering in a variety of ways because of abortion being against the law. Women did awful things out of fear and desperation. We knew that some would be injured, some would die, Many people around them, including children that they already had, would suffer. So we thought, we can be of use. You need an abortion, we'll help you. Call this number and ask for Jane. At first, these women were facilitators. They'd set up locations, find doctors, and provide counseling and transportation. 
Eventually, they learned how to do the abortions themselves. They ended up providing about 11,000 abortions. We have two guests with us from the project. The first is Emma Pildes. She directed the film with Tia Lesson. Emma, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you. Also here is Martha Scott, one of the women who provided abortion counseling services. Martha, thank you for being here. I'm really excited to talk with both of you. You're welcome. So, Emma, I'd love to start with you since you did direct this film. How did you find out about this story? I have a family connection to this story. Um, so I've long, um, long known about these incredible women. D- Daniel is my half brother. Um, we share a father. Mm-hmm. And who is Michael, the radical lawyer in the film? Oh, cool. Um, and Daniel's mom was a Jane, was Judith. Wow. Wow. Um, so it's a pretty close connection that um, we feel pretty prideful of. And um, in 2016, when Trump got into office, my brother, who is also a producer on this film and also a wonderful producer in his own right, uh, started developing the story because it was just, it just became more important than ever that uh, there was testimony, a bearing witness of, of what this country looks like last time women didn't have the right to choose. So Martha, how did you become involved with abortion counseling service? So a friend of mine, a, a playground friend, because this was a time when she was a a woman with uh, three little children, and I was with four little children. We met at the playground often. Uh, we lived down the street from one another. And she said, oh, I do this thing in the evenings that might interest you. And she uh, talked about how she does this counseling of women who are going to have illegal abortions. And she described it in terms of it is illegal what we do, but it's not uh, it's not dangerous. And uh, come to a meeting and see what it will be like. And uh, so I went to a meeting and discovered that what I would, I, what I could do is do this counseling one or two or three times a week in the evening. As it turns out, my husband worked nights, my children went to bed early, and I thought, oh, you know, this will be interesting. And the group of women, <clears throat> excuse me, who I met it then seemed very appealing to me as possible friends, uh, you know, as a cohort. So I totally get the appeal of, you know, especially meeting like-minded women and and having a, a sense that you can really kind of help impact some positive change in the lives of a lot of different people. I'm wondering how you reconciled that with the fact that, you know, you could have gone to jail for what you were doing. Well, I yes, I could have gone to jail. And it occurred to me today, had we not been arrested, Nobody would be talking to us right Interesting. now. <laughs> they might be, because uh, I just think the uh, the organization would be as well known as it is at the moment. And uh, so there may have been other organizations around the country that we don't know about that were doing very similar right. things and uh, uh, that have kind of lost to the historical record. Uh, anyhow, uh, at the time when I started, it seemed very low level. Mm-hmm. You know, we thought the people who were performing these abortions were um, were doctors, we turned out, and it was more than one uh, abortionist. It was a, a number of abortionists, and some were doctors and some weren't. Uh, and we did not feel as though we ourselves would be very, uh, would would very, be in very much danger. As we went along and, and acquired more and more control of the situation, it was clear to us that there was this component of uh, possible arrest and imprisonment. 
I guess we, we tried to be cautious and we crossed our fingers and we hoped the fact that we seemed to have some connection with the police, uh, that maybe we were being protected a little bit because there were people who, who used our services who were themselves connected with the police, who were um, cousins or daughters or wives of uh, police people. And how I reconciled it, I can't answer that because I think I was kind of, I, I didn't think about it a lot. I thought this was important enough to do and it just wasn't going to happen. You know, I, I, I've spent a lot of my life in denial. So why not this too, you know? <laughs> Good kind of denial. That makes sense though. Right, right. And we have yeah. to put stuff in boxes in some way or another, right? It's right. adaptive. And and I would just add to that, just having listened to so many of the women um, talk about um, their experience at the time, you know, and, and what Martha was, was um, alluding to is, you know, this was a service for the community, a needed service for the community. It was, mm-hmm. they were filling a, a, a void that our government and our healthcare system, you know, was not, was not providing. Um, so I think a lot of the um, protection that they felt or the, it, you know, it might sound irrational now, but it, you know, it very much felt to them at the time for good reason that, um, that law enforcement didn't want to break this up because it was serving a real purpose Um even to the extent of, as Martha said, you know, cops, girlfriends or judges, daughters, or, you know, I mean, it's, this is, this is a necessary and needed thing that will happen, whether it's legal or illegal. So the fact that they were doing it in a safe, um, loving, non-judgmental manner um, was, was, was really beneficial to the community. And so I think that had a lot to do with why it felt safe and, and why it took so long to, to, um, for them to get busted. Mm -hmm. So something that I thought was really interesting about this film was that uh, I think my understanding of illegal abortions as a person who was born, you know, in the mid eighties is that they were like total absolute nightmares, horror stories, um, which obviously many of them were, but it seemed to me that a big theme of this documentary was the idea that that these women were really helping facilitate putting decisions in the hands of women who had maybe never gotten to make choices for themselves before. I don't know. I just found it really interesting to to hear from women in this documentary saying, you know, that this was in a lot of ways some of the most compassionate care they'd ever gotten, which I don't know. I just I thought it was really interesting how how much the film portrayed that broad spectrum of different experiences. You know what I mean, Emma? Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it was really important to us to both paint a picture of how um, the grim realities of criminalizing abortion and what that means, um, but also dispelling myths, you know, Um there's mm-hmm. there's so much it's not even misinformation but you know um it's just such a divisive issue and it's been used by so many people um for their own how what they feel to be moral high ground and and as filmmakers you know i think t and i both really try to use the medium to work these things out for ourselves to understand the world you know so whether it be mm-hmm. you know saying 
um, abortion in general, legal or legal, um, can be a, a very upsetting, traumatic event all the way to the other side of, you know, some women get abortions and, and they don't question it and they don't think about it afterwards and it's a-okay, you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, a woman stood up at our, at our screening in New York a couple weeks ago and said that she got pregnant. She never knew of any sort of safe scenario for her to get an abortion. This was before abortion was legal in New York. And she married a very bad man because of it. And so it's not just the deaths um, and the sex, you know, sexual assault and the, all the ho- horrible things, right. which are enough, which are enough, <laughs> yeah. but it's also this um, crushing of women of their um dreams and 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 the cheating of our own self that we're going to feel for generations when we are keeping women from contributing to society and culture in all these beautiful ways because they had to make a decision because they got pregnant no kidding so martha you talked about you know meeting this lady on a playground i love that that's the origin story it's kind of perfect Um, Obviously, this was not something that you had ever anticipated that you would end up doing. I'm curious if you think the experience changed your trajectory as you did get older and and move through the world. It certainly changed my head. Uh, Did it change my trajectory? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, But it is true. I I came into it kind of a a novice in, in lots of ways, not having thought very seriously about political issues. I don't think... Uh, I don't think kind of the shade of my politics has changed very much, but the depth of my politics changed a lot. And it changed a lot in the course of doing the counseling and kind of coming to grips with the idea that um, not only can women not get abortions, but they really don't have very much agency over their lives. And that way, did it change the trajectory of my life? That I'm, I'm not so sure, except it, one of the nice things about the abortion counseling service, and lots of people can say this about different things that happen in their lives. I came out of this with a group mm-hmm. of friends, uh, some closer than others, who uh, always supported me, and I hoped I always supported them. <laughs> what you said about shade and depth, that's gorgeous mm-hmm. and fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Um, so Martha, what was it like? I mean, you know, obviously there has been coverage of these stories over the past decades, but what's it like to, to see your story told in this way with this documentary? Well, as Emma probably knows, and you do not know, I was very reluctant to get oh, involved were you? with this project. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, uh, and Emma, you can credit Daniel for being so persistent about this. <laughs> uh, and in that way that, Emma talked about this being, uh, you know, we, you know, family connection. Emma, uh, Daniel, someone I knew, was a very young child, you know, because his uh, his mother was involved in the abortion counseling service when she was pregnant and when he was born and that kind of thing. I've always had a little bit of reluctance uh, being a spokesperson for this. Uh, uh, part of it is kind of the way I feel about myself. I don't. I feel as though very often uh, this particular issue is over aggrandized. And I say this often when I talk to people, because what's important to me about having been involved in this group is that it could have been anyone other than me. It could have been lots of people who did this. And I'm hoping that 
if people get any inspiration from it, it's not because we were so strong and heroic, but because we were so ordinary. And we could do this thing that needed to be done because we really cared about doing it. And even sidestep things that would ordinarily stop us, such as the law, and get on with it. And I have to say, the product you guys have come up with, Emma, Daniel, Lindsay, is um, quite wonderful. Quite wonderful. I don't know. I mean, I I completely respect what you're saying, Martha, about, you know, being a normal person. But I think that's partly what makes it so badass and what is so important about it being, you know, having this inspirational message, too. You know, well, I just it's just such a it's always been such a moving um, notion to me. And so many of the women said it in addition to Martha that this idea because it's it's part of the ethos, really, you know, that they really took took a lot of time to think through and and create um it's about not being called heroes because that it makes people feel like they can't do it too so i have as much as i've been able to and as hard as it's been (laughs) tried to not uh call them heroes and you know i think they're extraordinary and they're just gonna have to take that but (laughs) (laughs) I also hope that at this point it will be useful because right. I think there's going to have to be a lot of work done in small groups or even by individuals or contributing money or that kind of sense of do what you can do. And if you can't do anything else, at least send some money to people in Texas who need it, that kind of stuff. Uh, and as long as people understand that their contributions are valuable whether or not they seem important and heroic, then I think maybe we can make yeah. a difference because for sure Roe v. Wade is going to yeah. look way different, if not be completely gone in a very short period of time. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, Emma, I'm not sure that you would call the timing of this film uncanny because, you know, you've been working on it for several years and I, it sounds like you put together a lot of pieces that a lot of us, I think, maybe didn't, which is why our near future looks a lot more surprising to some of us than others but I just so appreciated this film and the time you put into it and it was so nice to be able to speak to both of you about it too thank you and both of you just keep kicking ass in your totally ordinary ways (laughs) thank you you too (laughs) thank you In just a minute, we will give you a big old list of movies to keep an eye out for this summer. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Next up, let's talk all about summer movies. We are nearing peak summer blockbuster season, or at least what used to be considered a blockbuster season back before the pandemic. The film industry may have had to make some serious pivots over the last couple of years, but if there is one sign that we may be getting back to normal, it might just be this. 
I absolutely adored Top Gun Maverick. Did you? Oh my gosh. Yes. I was a huge fan. I'm seeing it again um, in IMAX this Friday, dragging my husband to it. And the first time I saw it, it was at a press screening, like, oh, woe is me. But it was not in IMAX. I was like, I can't wait to see this movie at IMAX. That is our buddy, Eliana Doctorman. She is a culture correspondent for Time. I think it's legitimately a good movie. Wow. I mean, I'm an unabashed Tom Cruise fan. I just love how his career is basically like, I will do anything, including possibly kill myself to entertain you. <laughs> I find that very charming for some reason, which like we could unpack that. <laughs> I feel exhausted nowadays by the CGI hmm. insanity of all the superhero movies. And it's so nice to just see a man in a plane who refuses to CGI anything and just wants to do crazy things mm. like fly these jets and jump out of planes and, you know, just be a crazy person. I appreciate that. We asked Eliana about another big release this summer. Yes, it is a Marvel movie. I'm excited for Thor Love and Thunder, despite being exhausted by superheroes. What a classic Thor adventure. I generally love everything Taika Waititi does, and I think that they've allowed him to put his own stamp on this franchise in a really fun and funny way. Um, and Christian Bale is playing the bad guy, and he looks pretty freaky and interesting in the new one. And the big thing is that, you know, back in 2019, they announced that Natalie Portman was coming back to the franchise and she was going to basically be the new Thor, carry Thor's hammer. Um, and Natalie Portman definitely did her arm exercises for this role. Her arms look unbelievable. Thor comes out July 8th. And if you, like me, have the suspicion that there is more Marvel stuff out there than ever before, you're not wrong, but it's not all on the big screen. The pace of three or four Marvel movies a year existed before the pandemic, but you could kind of skip one or two or see them later and it didn't really matter. And there weren't like eight TV shows in the interim to keep up with. And now it feels like homework. Now, if homework is not something that you're into when it comes to watching movies, Eliana recommends the new Jordan Peele movie, Nope, which comes out on July 22nd. They've been keeping the plot extremely under wraps. There is one trailer, and it's sort of hard to tell from the trailer whether the threat is aliens or monsters <laughs> or something supernatural. Was it a miracle? Um, and it feels like one of those movies that you sort of need to see as soon as it comes out because whatever the thing is, you don't want spoiled for you. And I feel like Jordan Peele is one of the few directors left who it's just appointment viewing. Um, I will go to a movie theater to see whatever he makes because he's a genius. If you're looking for something big and flashy, but you're not ready to do the whole lots of strangers in a crowded room thing, there's something for you too. There's something a little bit interesting going on at Netflix where they are trying to create really big budget films to compete these other movies like Thor and Nope. Um, so they have The Gray Man, 
which is a movie that's coming out in July, I believe, that has Chris Evans and Ryan Gosling in it. There are spies in this, and Chris Evans has like a skeevy stash that is very enjoyable. You must be Lloyd. What gave it away? The trash stash. It just, it leans Lloyd. And it's the most expensive movie Netflix has ever made. So it will be interesting to see. It's going to play in theaters for a week, I think, before it goes to Netflix. It'll be interesting to see whether that gets people to go to theaters because it's hard to sort of imagine bigger movie stars than Chris Evans and Ryan Gosling punching each other. Um, So it'll be an interesting experiment. Another interesting experiment that also just happens to feature Chris Evans is what's probably the biggest kids movie of the summer, Lightyear. It is the latest in Pixar's Toy Story franchise. It is about the person the toy is based on, but it's unclear if the person is a real person or a person in a movie that came out around the time that Andy got the Buzz Lightyear toy. You are a toy! You weren't the real Buzz Lightyear. You're you're an action figure. You are a child's plaything. You are a sad, strange little man, and you have my pity. Farewell. And of course, Chris Evans has been stoking the fire by tweeting things like, this isn't based on the toy, it's based on the real person behind the toy. And everybody's like, that's what Buzz Lightyear would say. An existential mystery, if I ever heard one. Lightyear comes out June 17th. Eliana Docterman is a culture correspondent at Time. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you have not already joined our Facebook headquarters group, I highly recommend it. You can find it if you search for Nerdette headquarters or you can go to facebook.com slash groups slash Nerdette HQ. There are several hundred amazing Nerdette listeners in that group and they give each other book recommendations and share craft ideas and pictures of birds. And I don't know, it's just a lot of really great stuff. You're going to love it. You can sign up again if you search Nerd at Headquarters in Facebook. We also have a newsletter that goes out every Friday morning. You can get that at wbez.org slash nerdataf. Maggie Civit builds that newsletter every week. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman. And our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. We will see you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.